Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader. Uh, we are coming to you uh, over WF over PRN.FM, over PRN.FM. And um, this morning we have a couple of guests. We're going to uh, make one or two technical adjustments right here, and we are ready. Continuing, um, oh, let me just remind you before we start talking to our guests this morning that. Uh, uh, anything, of course, that you hear here, you are free to comment on. In fact, I welcome your comments. Just go to, if you want to contact me, go to FaderFiles, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com, FaderFiles dot com, and there'll be a way for you to join my mailing list and to get in touch with me to make any comments on the programs. Uh, as part of our continuing monitoring and observation of the ongoing 
I don't know what the word is, nightmare that is Donald Trump and company. We are paying close attention to, obviously, what's more important now than almost anything else are the appointments he's making for very high offices as an administration. And uh, our guest today is going to uh, comment on some of this. We have with us Taylor Lincoln. Hi. Uh, you there? Can you hear me? Can you, uh, can my guest hear me? Hello. Uh, we have Taylor Lincoln with us. Mr. Lincoln? Yes. Oh, hi. Um, just establishing contact with you there. Let me, let me introduce Taylor Lincoln. Uh, he's director of research at Public Citizens Congress Watch Division. Uh, Taylor Lincoln has authored or co-authored numerous reports on subjects concerning regulations, health care, worker safety, political spending, and other topics. He has been quoted in the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal, among other publications, and has appeared on CNN, CNBC, NPR, and other broadcast media outlets. Uh, first, can you tell us a little bit about what Public Citizen is? Well, we're a consumer advocacy work uh, a group. We work on um, policy issues in uh, Washington, D.C., and the federal government and the states across a panoply of issues and in all forums, the courts, the Congress, the executive branch, and in um, states uh, the same way. Mm -hmm. And have, have you been around for a while? Well, Public Citizen has been around since 1971. We were founded by uh, Ralph Nader, so yes, I do think we've been around a little while. Okay. okay. Uh, and the funding for the, uh, for the organization? We get our funding from a combination of our members who um, uh, contribute about $25 a year, um, some um, more generous individual donors, and from foundations. The, um, the uh, job of keeping a watch on tr Trump's transition team, uh, his proposed appointments and some of his appointments, which will have to be, some of them will have to be approved by various groups. Uh, I'd like to go over some of them, get your take on who they are, yes. what their backgrounds are, what their appointment will mean you know, for the policies and practices of the administration and for the country mm -hmm. in general. Uh, first of all, when we start off, we have uh, obviously Vice President Pence. Well, is, he, is he a connection to the, I mean, he's the uh, establishment connection to the party, the conservative wing of the party, right? That's right. And, um, and so, yes. go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I think that what you said is exactly right. He is an establishment figure, unlike some of the people that have been in uh, Trump's orbit. Um, however, he is a very far-right, um, socially conservative establishment figure. He, in that respect, he's not necessarily a mainstream Republican. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> Chief of Staff uh, Reince, I always get his name wrong, Reince Priebus? I think it's Reince, yes. Reince Priebus. Um, he also is in a, a connection, like a bridge, to the uh, standard Democrat, you know, the standard Republican Party, right? I think that's exactly right. I think Reince Priebus is probably the, the most conventional um, establishment figure from the party. Uh, he had a very hard job um, because... Um, up until about three and a half weeks ago, I don't think any of us thought that Donald Trump was in any way conceivably going to be elected the president of the United States of America. That's true. And he had to bridge the gap between Trump as the party nominee, who uh, seemed not to be um, credible or plausible, and the rest of the party and hold things together. And, um, and he did do that. Deal with the various um, 
prominent members of the party who were disavowing Trump, and he hung in there and hung in there, and then a miracle for them happened on Election Day, and all of a sudden uh, Donald Trump became the president-elect. Yeah, I still have trouble actually saying it, but uh, nevertheless, uh, that's the fact yeah. of it. So, um, <clears throat> so, um, so is he being being favored with sticking with Trump and, and bridging this gap, uh, or is he somebody that uh, that anybody really knows that Trump uh, uh, has been advised to pick, or you know, or that he favors yeah. himself? Or well, I mean, I think is you you probably feel yourself that our ability to figure out either discern what's going on, what's in certain people's minds, or what's going to happen this year True. has been pretty difficult because uh, most of us have been wrong a lot more than we've been right. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sense on Priebus is that he's a fairly conventional, down-the-line, mainstream Republican, conservative, and that, you know, he's a chief of staff. His chief job as he is at the RNC is as an administrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, you know, of the various appointments, that's one that's not particularly shocking to me. And I think that um, it's probably wise for Trump, you know, simply to pick somebody who will be a a button-down administrator and kind of keep things running because mm-hmm. most of the people who he has appointed have been very um, strong, you know, virulent ideologues and so forth that don't necessarily appear to have a particular penchant for administrating and just keeping things running smoothly. And mm-hmm. previous to his credit, I mean, he kind of held things together um, through a pretty big storm. Right. Um, That's when true. you've got a nominee for president, who was, um, you know, disavowed by almost every single living past Republican nominee for president, and mm-hmm. hung in there, and you know, like we say, well, <laughs> came up roses. Speaking of people who um, who are more ideologues and um, who are maybe the opposite of the kind of person that Reince Priebus is, uh, we have uh, a position. I'm, I don't. This is a position that's been made up, or maybe it's a position that's exists before. Chief White House strategist. Uh, Trump campaign CEO right. uh, Steve Bannon. Can you? What is a chief right. White House strategist? I mean, you know, I think the White House strategist. It kind of reminds me of the position that Karl Rove, I believe, was given after George oh. W. Bush's reelection. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve Bannon was brought in after um, one of the many episodes of tumult in the um, Trump campaign when Paul Manafort, who had been brought into right the ship, uh, it became too controversial and was discovered to have payments from Ukraine that were unexplained and possibly not legally reported and so forth. And mm-hmm. So they tossed um, Manafort over the side, and they brought in uh, Steve Bannon to be the CEO and Kellyanne Conway to be the um, campaign manager and uh, ended up serving as the public face and spokeswoman for the campaign. And Bannon took over the um, the right wing news outlet Breitbart.com after uh, Mr. Breitbart died about mm-hmm. three or four years ago, and it was already an extreme right wing, um, virulently anti Obama sort of Tea Party website, and Bannon took it further to the right and began associating it with this new-to-me alt-right movement, which is essentially a a white nationalist uh, movement that, um, I don't know, even in Bannon's um, uh, characterization, he says he's not a racist, it's sort of a European 
centric uh, view of America, and it is followed um, avidly by um, groups that groups and individuals that openly preach um, racism and all sorts of, of things along those lines. So. Um, Chief White House strategist, is that political strategy, actual policy strategy that has to do with domestic and international affairs, or it's just something, whatever he needs it to be? He's just in there, and he's got his finger on everything. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, I, don't think, I don't think we can know. I didn't hear Bannon's name come up in the coverage of the campaign a whole lot, but obviously he was showing up to work every day and doing whatever he was doing. Hmm. It seems to me that Donald Trump's campaign for president, it wasn't exactly the wonkiest campaign for president in the world, right? The True. details on the policies were very, very scant. And the campaign was about very broad brushstrokes and punctuated by outrageous statements repeatedly. Mm. And that seems to be what Bannon's temperament is. So it would seem to me that his strategy is not going to be like to write out the fine details of how to, for instance, um, seek to replace Obamacare. Mm -hmm. But in these kind of big-picture ways that Donald Trump presents himself to the uh, public and does the sort of things that he's, you know, deals with the sort of things that he's talked about doing, uh, you know, whether he follows through them or or not. But Mm -hmm. notions like building the wall or rounding up immigrants or um, banning or setting up additional hurdles for people of certain religions to come into the United States. Mm -hmm. Those seem to me to be the things that Donald Trump made his candidacy about. They were the defining aspect of the candidacy. Those things seem to be in sync with what we know about Bannon's mindset, and it would seem to me that that's sort of the canvas that Bannon would be playing on. Um, let's, let's pick out some of the other ones that seem to be, or maybe are perhaps more, uh, controversial. Um, Attorney General, uh, Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions. So that's, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions. Um, it's a bit of an irony that he'd be named for Attorney General because he was up for a federal judicial post, um, I believe in the 1980s and uh, was blocked for that post because of revelations um, fairly well substantiated that he'd made racist comments, um, such as about the NAACP. Mm -hmm. He lost that appointment. He became the Attorney General of Alabama and then later ran for U.S. Senator. He's been in the Senate for about 20 years. He's one of the most conservative senators, senators, which is saying a lot because once they get to the conservative edge of the spectrum, there's not much further to go, and a lot of them are there. Mm-hmm. I think that his defining characteristic is he is uh, vir- virulently anti-immigration. And he's not just against illegal immigration. He's against legal immigration. And he's been a- at the vanguard of that movement uh, to, for instance, um, to um, block the um, expansion or perhaps even attempt to reduce the type of visas that people come in to get to come in to work legally, um, mm-hmm. which are often um, desired by businesses because they're looking for certain people with technical aptitude and so forth. And he challenged his own party, which um, up until recently had a, a, a pretty strong pro-immigration uh, position in its mainstream, right? That was a position that was put forth by um, 
George uh, W. Bush, mm-hmm. uh, and then in the so-called autopsy after the 2012 elections, the lesson they learned in the autopsy was that they had to change their approach to Hispanics and so forth to win an election. Uh, and uh, Sessions went the other direction, as did Trump. Sessions was the first U.S. senator to endorse Trump, and uh, now he's in charge of the Justice Department, or if he gets confirmed, he will be. <clears throat> and um, all of these, well, not all of them, but most of these, uh, the Secretary of uh, Transportation, Secretary of uh, Housing and Urban Development, Attorney General, these have to be approved by the... That's correct. All right. yeah. uh, Bannon does not, but most of the, the positions that we've talked about, almost all of them do. Now let's uh, let's go on to somebody um, who is going to present uh, an incredible um, problem for a lot of people in this country, and that's Health and Human Services Secretary yeah. Georgia Congressman Tom Price. I missed what you said there. Uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Georgia Congressman Tom Price. Yes. Yeah. So he, he is one of the more uh, he's a social conservative and one of the more conservative Republicans in the House, um, which tends to be even more extreme. Than the Senate, uh, he's a he's a physician, um, he's a millionaire, and he is. Um, I think among his defining uh, characteristics are uh, over the top critic of Obamacare, and an advocate for privatization. Um, um, I, I I think it's safe to say of privatization of Medicare and of mm. Medicaid. Um, he will be the um, he will be. Um, sort of the quarterback of whatever kind of plan the Republicans come up with to attempt to replace Obamacare. Um, I think one of the biggest questions with regard to Obamacare, sort of the biggest gut question on it, is how to handle the question of whether people, uh, it'll be legal in the future for insurance companies to discriminate against uh, people with pre-existing medical conditions. And um, uh, it's been noted that uh, Trump said, not just since election, but way back at the beginning of the campaign, that he wanted to keep the provision protecting people with pre-existing conditions, which is really the whole thing that Obamacare hinges on, because it leads to the question, if you're going to have that, well, then you have to have healthy people buy insurance, or people would just get it when they get sick and so forth. Right. And it, Pence does not, or excuse me, not Pence, but price. Um, price. A price, from what I have read, seems to be leaning towards what are known as like state high risk pools, which is to say, okay, well, you can't get insurance because you've got MS or whatever. Right. We're going to have a high risk pool for you where we will segregate and ensure we'll provide tax credits or some means for you to get insurance through the state. These have been tried at the state before. Um, and almost across the board have failed. They just don't work. Um, for them to work, they would take a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't solve any problem. Like just putting the sick people in a different pool doesn't make the overall cost any any cheaper. And so I think his ideology is going to be um, put to the test. And if you like Medicare as we know it, uh, you'll want to keep a close eye on uh, on Tom Price because I don't think he does. Mm-hmm. This, uh, well, I don't want to comment on this. But I just I just want to get some facts so we can. Um, <clears throat> we have uh, we have several minutes left. Let's um, let's take a look at um, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. Uh, yes. we, we do have. 
I do want to make sure that in this half hour we do get to Treasury, Commerce, and Defense, and possibly right. something. Yeah, but um, maybe what we could do is uh, we we can pick her up afterwards. But Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Yes. So Mnuchin is a former Goldman Sachs employee who I believe formed a, a private equity or a, a hedge fund of his own, or joined one a private equity firm, I believe it was, which purchased um, the um, bank that emerged out of the failure of CIT Bank. <clears throat> and then um, this bank was called One West. And One West uh, made um, a name for itself in the aftermath of the financial crisis for being um, particularly aggressive in foreclosing on people who uh, were having trouble paying their mortgages. And um, this has been uh, a area of controversy throughout the Obama administration. Uh, the government has set up certain programs that were intended to permit homeowners to um, work out arrangements that could work with them, such as extending their mortgages and so forth. And in general, the banks have been uncooperative with this, and there have been a lot mm -hmm. of horror stories of people who, for instance, were um, exchanging papers and working through a process with one side of the bank, and then a foreclosure notice arrives from another one, or they were trying to work through these processes, and the papers got lost and so forth. But One West appears to have been um, particularly aggressive in kicking people out of their houses. Um, additionally, Mnuchin has called for, if not repeal, um, extreme rollback of Dodd-Frank. Uh, I think one of the central fault lines there is like whether banks, what the capital requirements will be for banks and so forth. Uh, his approach will be to, uh, his proposal will be to reduce regulation to increase um, bank lending. And what critics will say is that that is the same approach that was used in the um, in the 2000s when lending standards d decreased so much mm -hmm. that the banks ended up getting themselves in deep trouble and um, in, a, in a sort of uh, spiraling way, um, and jeopardizing each other and threatening a domino effect that would bring down the entire U.S. economy and almost did. <clears throat> well, wonderful. That's the Treasury Secretary. What about Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross? We have a few minutes. You know, left. I don't know much about Wilbur Ross. He's a billionaire businessman. I believe he's a de developer. Um, I don't have too much to comment on about Wilbur Ross. Mm -hmm. And um, let's take a look at somebody like uh, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos for a minute or two. Yeah. <clears throat> so... Betsy DeVos, um, the, her defining characteristic, she's, she's a uh, heir of the Amway Alticor mm -hmm. fortune. And for your listeners that may not be familiar, this is a home products company that uses a multi-level multi sales um, system. Uh, the family are billionaires. They are devout social conservatives. They live in western Michigan, um, uh, and uh, others in her family are politicians have sought office and so forth. Her defining quality is that she is an um, avid advocate for, <clears throat> for charter schools. And mm -hmm. uh, the state in which she lives, Michigan, has been a state that has spent um, disproportionately more money on charter schools than most other states. 
And the other aspect of the Michigan experience is the charter schools there have worked very poorly. The charter schools' performance is less than the regular schools. Um, the uh, federal government found in the past year that there is an unacceptable number of charter schools in Michigan uh, that are failing. It's a topic of big controversy in Michigan. Uh, there was a um, proposed uh, aspect of legislation that would have set down some guidelines and prohibited failing uh, schools, failing charter schools from expanding, uh, and Betsy DeVos opposed that provision. So um, if, if I were to say one theme of the various folks who have been either cabinet appointees uh, or cabinet nominees or transition team members, it has been a penchant towards privatization of traditional government services. Mm -hmm. And uh, Betsy DeVos certainly fits into that mold, and charter schools are going to be a big topic in the years to come. Well, in the, in the couple of minutes that we have left, you know, there was a, there's a brand new one now. That's James Mattis, Secretary of yes. Defense. Do you know anything about him? Not too much. It seems to me, just from listening to the pundits, that he has aroused less objection from, for instance, Democrats than uh, most of the, um, mm -hmm. the nominees. Uh, his nickname is Mad Dog. People say Trump likes his nickname, but I don't, I don't have much to add there. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, he does seem to have some uh, varying policies that go back and forth. For instance, he still uh, apparently uh, he, he approves or he's willing to go along with the Iran deal that, uh, that Obama made. Uh, Interesting. I think I also heard Trump say in one of his um, apparent reversals since being elected that Mattis told him torture doesn't work, and Trump said, well, that's interesting. So uh, he opposes torture. Yeah. All right. Uh, and in the last couple of minutes, uh, oh, by the way, you've been listening to Taylor Lincoln, who's the director of research at Public Citizens Congress Watch Division. And... Um, one last thing is uh, we don't know yet who's going to be the Secretary of State. We've got a couple of minutes. That's right. Here. Yeah, uh, and uh, it seems to be a toss-up at the moment between Romney and Giuliani. But, of course, we have no idea who it's going to be. We don't have any idea. Boy, I, not, I guess there's not, no, no pick. Has, Trump has not shown um, a, a, um, a hesitancy to surprise us. Mm -hmm. who, who knows if it's going to be either of them. You know, Petraeus is also been mentioned, and then also uh, that former General David Petraeus, who right. uh, left in a sex scandal and was um, found guilty of a misdemeanor in terms of um, sharing classified information. And then there's a general that's been mentioned for that position. I think it's a very, very important position. Uh, Giuliani's made no secret that he wants it. What a Romney Giuliani is Giuliani. Has, uh, yeah has had a, con a conversion from thinking that Trump is really one of the most despicable people on the planet to being somebody that he apparently, after dinner the other night, seems to have come to admire a little bit. <sighs> uh, well, all right. So these things will continue to unfold, and um, we'll see what happens. I mean, I can't even imagine Giuliani, but uh, I have no idea. Well, that's what I was starting to say is that I just couldn't see that, but there's a lot of things. <laughs> Trump right. will do things you can't see, and, and he will. So who knows? Who knows what he's going to do with that one? 
Yeah, Taylor Lincoln, if people want to get in touch or want to read some of the work that you've done or just generally get in touch with Public Citizen, how do they go about doing that? Great. So our website is www.citizen.org, and we have all sorts of information. And readers should also feel free to go to my Twitter account. That's Taylor Lincoln underscore, uh, normal spellings of both names, and an underscore at the end. And I tweet out our reports. We've done quite a few things on the uh, on the transition, um, not just keeping track of the personnel, but also the ethics policy, conflicts of interest, and so forth. So that's another place to go is Lincoln underscore or citizen.org, which is the URL for our organization. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming on this morning, and we all will continue to watch all this uh, with... Uh uh, I don't know, morbid fascination, because uh, it's, it's like a bunch of bowling balls rolling down on us, and we're pins and can't do anything about it. So. Well, that's a nice analogy. If nothing else, it will be compelling. It has not failed to be interesting at any point. And um, I and the other folks at Public Citizen would love to come back anytime you'd like to have us. Yeah, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, we'll need to know more as we go on. We have to keep track of these people so we know what's happening. Well, and we'll be doing that. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, and um, we will again perhaps call on you. This is Mike Fader, and um, this is The Turning Point. We're going to have another guest in a couple of minutes, and so stay tuned. Mike Fader again um, with the turning point. I'm going to, we have a guest on this morning and we're going to get to our guest in just a minute or two, but I wanted to read you something. This is an article from uh, the Times from, uh, yes, I know, by the way, I know a lot of you would like me to just stop reading the New York Times and um, I may actually do that. I may actually do that for various reasons, but uh, I haven't gotten to that point yet. Here's an article, and I'm going to read a little bit of it, and then we're going to go to our guest, uh, Alex DeBranco, who is waiting for us. And uh, she um, uh, is going to talk to us about uh, the alt-right and about the right and the right wing in general uh, connected with Trump and with this election. But this is from the New York Times. <clears throat> By the time Richard B. Spencer, the leading ideologue of the alt-right movement, and the final speaker of the night rose to address a gathering of his followers on Saturday, the crowd was restless. After 11 hour, in 11 hours of speeches and panel discussions in a federal building named after Ronald Reagan a few blocks from the White House, a succession of speakers had laid out a harsh vision for the future, but had denounced violence and said that Hispanic citizens and black Americans had nothing to fear. Earlier in the day, Mr. Spencer himself had urged the group to start acting less like an underground organization and more like an establishment. But now his tone changed 
as he began to tell the audience of more than 200 people, mostly young men, this is an audience of 200 people, mostly young men, what they had been waiting to hear. He railed against Jews and with a smile quoted Nazi propaganda in the original German. America, he said, belonged to white people whom he called the children of the sun, a race of conquerors and creators who had been marginalized, but now in the era of President-elect Donald J. Trump were awakening to their own identity. So what do we really have in store from, uh, for us uh, <coughs> from this um, alt-right, from this right-wing fringe? We have our guest today, Alex DeBranco. Hi. Hi. Uh, she's a, let me introduce you a little bit to people here. <clears throat> she's, uh, Alex uh, is a sociology PhD candidate at Yale University who researches rightist movements and the impact of long-term infrastructure building. She is a visiting student researcher at Berkeley Center for Right-Wing Studies and an editorial board member for The Public Eye, a quarterly publication of political research associates. Um, Richard Spencer, the alt-right, the fringe groups uh, that uh, were backing Trump that are lurking there behind Trump, I wanted to find out more about that. But first, can you tell me a little bit about uh, political research associates? Yeah, Political Research Associates is a social justice think tank that studies right-wing movements. Um, It was founded about 35 years ago um, by a political scientist who was concerned that the academy wasn't taking the rise of the right seriously enough. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, you know, as uh, she thought it would be a shorter-term project through the Reagan era, Um, But as it turns out, PRA's analysis, um, which looks comprehensively at margins to mainstream on the right um, and the intersectionality of issues, has continued to be important and is, you know, more important than ever right now. Uh, How does Political Research Associates get their funding? Um, Political Research Associates is funded um, in some part by... um, Allied Social Justice uh, Foundation, um, and in significant part by donations from uh, individuals who support um, PRA's work um, and uh, what it does to challenge the right and advance social justice. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they take donations via their website in the way that, you know, lots of small nonprofit organizations are always looking for the support of people who benefit and care about their research. And uh, I guess Berkeley's Center for Right-Wing Studies is pretty uh, self-evident for what it is, right? Yeah, the Center for Right-Wing Studies um, is a part of the Institute for the Study of Social Issues at UC Berkeley. Um, So it's within the academy, and um, it also... um, you know, does this academic work of bringing together affiliate scholars um, who are studying aspects of the right um, and attempting to provide the kind of detailed analysis and understanding uh, that can uh, really help provide a theoretical basis and a substance to um, knowing who it is that we're facing mm-hmm. um, and what it is that, you know, you can do about it. Now, 
Now, these groups have always been around, and they've been studied for a long, long time. They've been around for a lot longer than, um, you know, for decades for, uh, you know, uh, fascism in Europe and fascism in this country, right-wing groups, the KKK, uh, the American Nazi Party. These groups have been around a long time. But uh, <clears throat> nobody is ever taking them seriously, and they have never been thought to be taking themselves seriously as much as they have since the advent of Donald Trump, which makes this all the more something, something that we have to be paying attention to. Uh, Trump's election and some of his supporters, some of the most vocal people at his rallies and other people who are supporting him, uh, are part of what's called the alt-right. Uh, what is the alt-right? Where did that come? Where did that come from? What does that mean? <laughs> sure. Well, first of all, I would just say that um, it's uh, it's not the case that nobody has taken these groups seriously because groups like Political Research Associates have been following both the online and offline manifestations mm-hmm. of these kind of groups um, and have warned in the past um, that we didn't suddenly get into the situation we are today and the Trump campaign really didn't create anything um, that wasn't already there. He spoke to movements that had already been building power. Um, the alt-right in particular is distinguished from some of the other aspects of the KKK and white supremacist movements in the past, um, in part by the method that it uses, um, the self-described alt-right um, is very strong in online organization, and many of the traditional hate groups, um, white supremacist groups, neo-Nazi groups that are the kind that, for instance, the Southern Poverty Law Center monitors, mm-hmm. um, have been things that organized on the ground um, through local communities and, and local community networks. Um, so part of the distinguishing factor is a tactical one. Um, that this is a, a nationwide online mobilization that has less um, on-the-ground aspects. So, as with the, the conference in D.C. that you quoted, um, they have come out, and also uh, there are times in which members um, of the alt-right or its various ideologies um, also manifest in, for instance, violent, uh, what are called lone wolf attacks, Um, The alt-right is an umbrella term Mm -hmm. that refers to a number of different branches of ideologies um, that are further to the right than the the mainstream um, right wing of the United States. Um, There has been some um, pushback on using the term alt-right and the desire to replace it with just, for instance, white supremacists mm-hmm. um, overall. Um, the problem with that that has been argued is that um, not all right, alt-rightists are white supremacists per se, oh. um, and it erases some of the identities that are involved there. So there's, there's branches of white nationalism, neo-Nazi, and white supremacy, but there's also, for instance, um, the role of what's been called the manosphere, um, but is really a, a version of um, male supremacism. Um, what's, that, that what's that called? What's that, I'm sorry. Key, what's that word? Manosphere. They call it the manosphere. Yeah, <laughs> like the blogosphere for men. Manosphere. Um, All right, go ahead. So, yeah, so that's what it's been called. But um, 
you know, a lot of the opposition to, you know, Hillary Clinton as a woman who was running and a lot of the support for Donald Trump came also from these um, men's rights movements and other misogynistic um, movements online. And then there are a few other sort of fringe components, what is called the neo-reactionary movement and, and a few other sort of types. So the alt-right is, is an umbrella term, and, and pretty much whatever ideology it refers to is an extreme one. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is important when we talk about members of the alt-right to use both the umbrella term of the alt-right and whatever um, section of it they come from. Because, for instance, if we just use white supremacists for everything, not only does it you know, change how we can understand what the cleavages are and how to fight them, but also erases some of the other portions like misogyny that are very significant to the movement. Well, let me ask you this question uh, before we, um, by the way, if you just tuned in, we're listening to Alex DeBranco, and she's a uh, sociology PhD candidate at Yale University who researches rightist movements. Uh, she is a visiting student researcher at Berkeley Center for Right-Wing Studies and an uh, editorial board member for the Public Eye which is a quarterly publication of political research associates. Even without the advent of Trump, these groups would have gotten stronger just uh, just in the course of things by the uh, the increase of, of of online presence, wouldn't they? Yes, yeah, so certainly the online manifestation, um, just from a tactical perspective, gave a, a certain opportunity to them, and that you know, happened long before Donald Trump, the the shooting that occurred at the um, African-American church in Charleston. Um, prosecutors and the Southern Poverty Law Center, in, in looking at it, um, see that the shooter was radicalized by um, what he had read online. So he's what they call a lone wolf, but mm-hmm. he's coming out of being radicalized by this movement. Um, and then not just tactically, but, um, you know, these movements have also been growing both in their online and offline manifestations throughout, for instance, the Obama presidency. We saw a rise in um, what the SPLC follows um, and calls hate groups, um, and especially a sort of merger of racist and xenophobic and anti-government ideologies so all on the-, the right centered around who Obama was as president. Oh, I see. So it really, uh, in a lot of ways, it was Obama that uh, that um, that poked these people and caused them to start swarming even larger like bees, right? Yeah, he was definitely a recru- recruiting ground for racist movements. Um, but, you know, and uh, it's also just the case that um, a lot of these, these movements have um, been fairly serious over time. Um, aspects that you see, such as in the men's rights movement, um, that are virulent misogyny, mm-hmm. um, have their more mainstream component in certain aspects of sexism and rape culture and the acceptance of, you know, Donald Trump's, for instance, record on, on sexual assault and, and sexual harassment. This is a place where some connections can easily be made. I mean, the way he acted, the way he spoke about women, that kind of thing, right? I mean, that's why they might find a home with him or think yes. they, think they might find a home with him. 
Yeah, they definitely, you know, Obama and, and you know, the rise of, of working women and, and all sorts of things are, are enemies. Um, they, work, they worry about what they um, refer to as demographic winter sometimes for the white race, um, that there will be a, a majority-minority country, um, that we will have more people of color than white people, mm-hmm. um, which has been a constant concern of nativist movements throughout American history. And in the past, they've incorporated um, people who were previously considered non-white, such as uh, the Irish, um, mm-hmm. Irish Catholics. Um, into whiteness, and there is a sense right now that there aren't any more groups that they can bring into the coalition to keep mm-hmm. their majority. Oh, so um, they, they've so, run out. They've so run they've, out of groups they can promote. Uh, they've run out of groups that they can promote as white. Um, mm-hmm. So they've both been seeing increasing threats. You know, Obama and other aspects of just where society is going, and now Trump has become their sort of uh, opportunity and in someone who they see and you know even the the mainstream um, white supremacist david duke was real excited <laughs> about donald trump's presidency um so and he, he he's he's um, what you consider a more mainstream uh rightist than the, the, exactly than the yeah okay. so so the people who support donald trump like the alt-right is is one manifestation um of these ideologies the um the people who represent them, this this man, Richard Spencer, maybe you can tell me a little bit about him. Uh, Richard Spencer says here the leading ideologue of the alt-right movement. Can, do you know more that you could tell us about Richard Spencer? Um, yeah, I mean, Richard Spencer in particular um, is a major um, just both thought leader and organizer. Mm-hmm. Um so he is one of the people who is instrumental right now in wanting to build the you know offline presence as well. Right. He's the president of a, a white nationalist think tank, the National Policy Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, where where are they and where, where, where is a place like that located? Where is it supported? How is it supported? I mean, where, um, does, where does money come from to fund these? This is just groups like any other group, like a left wing or a group or uh, a nonprofit yeah. group. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the NPI it's it's based in Arlington, so it's in the you know DC um, Beltway area, and I don't know um, anything in particular about NPI's funding, mm-hmm. um, but you know it's certainly the case that. Um, that throughout, uh, throughout, you know, especially like the last century, um, that far-right groups have tended to be funded in similar ways to more mainstream groups mm-hmm. um, by, you know, in the same kind of fundraising method by individuals, um, either online or um, through their local communities, and you know, right. sometimes there are major donors with family foundation foundations who um, support them as well. Uh, you know, the the legacy of even the contemporary right in the United States and the initial funding that it got by Joseph Coors, for instance, was very influential in the 1970s. Coors, had, Coors, um, Coors Brewing, yeah. 
was this Chorus Beer, and, and he had, you know, neo-Nazi sympathies himself. Um, so this is not, um, you know, the, the funding aspect of things is, is probably um, fairly straightforward, um, though I don't know that NPI in particular. <clears throat> but Spencer is uh, defined, I've seen him defined in a couple of places as, a, as an ideologue of the, uh, the alt-right, of somebody who is, um, who is more educated, who is more uh, familiar with ideas. Uh, who right. Is, yeah. Yeah. And that's actually one of the alt-right sort of um, claims for its own um, efficacy, um, not just the online tactic, but that they see themselves as educated and brilliant and, and laud their speakers um, like Spencer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they see this as a way that they are um, different from the, um, like, you know, they've referred to where being different from skinhead groups um, because of their intellectualism. Um, so it's certainly the case, and I think, you know, the fact that uh, Spencer started and, and made him self-president of this white nationalist think tank um, indicates how much, you know, he thinks of himself as um, providing ideas for the movement and that the movement is something that cares about having that kind of um, legitimate institutional structure um, mm-hmm. centered on um, intellectual ideas and wanting to be seen as an entity that is not um, that is not backwards or uneducated or racist out of ignorance or those kinds of things, um, but acting out of what is often pseudoscience, um, but a, a real desire to appear to be intellectually grounded. Well, such things have happened before, and it seems very familiar to me. Uh, you know, when you study history, this kind of pseudoscience that has to do with racism and racialism. Um, I want to ask you a question about um, Steve Bannon. Is in he any way a, a bridge or a connection between uh, the far right or the alt-right, and uh, now he's Donald Trump's chief, chief strategy advisor? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is, um, I mentioned earlier, the study of margins to mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that we study rightist movements from margins to mainstream is because um, because that's a, a fluctuating spectrum. And the, you know, members of the alt-right, you know, already felt like with Donald Trump, um, they were more accepted. They were hearing the kind of racist and xenophobic and misogynistic language that appeals to them. Right. Um, Stephen Bannon has been referred to by members of the alt-right as alt-light, I think is the, uh, the term they use. They like their, they like their catchy terms. So, mm-hmm. um, so some of the hardcore members of the alt-right might not think that Stephen Bannon is you know, enough to the right ideologically. Um, but he's certainly quite far over there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's definitely the case that to have him coming um, into a position of so much power and legitimacy and to be coming from an organization like Breitbart, um, which, you know, is itself strongly associated with 
with the alt-right and with white nationalism and, and all of these other issues um, is very, very concerning. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if he's, even if, you know, there are people to the right of him on the alt-right, um, he himself is uh, also what, you know, other observers would see as essentially uh, associated with that movement, um, despite his own attempts to distance himself and in trying to establish his legitimacy as a government uh, figure now within the Trump administration. Right. Uh, and we'll see how much the uh, the idea of being respectable and being a member of the government has any effect on his uh, on his views. Maybe I'm, I'm I'm thinking maybe they would have some effect, but you never know with Trump. Uh, you have no idea. Well, what Right. I mean, respectability certainly can have the impact of making them a a little bit less vocal, though Trump has upended a lot of that in his campaign cycle. Um, But the the other concern is, you know, whatever Bannon and and even Trump are saying right now Mm -hmm. doesn't really change whatever their internal views are. Um, And so there's also the, the issue of making sure that um, analysts and, and media and so on don't fall into the trap of of taking um, conciliatory rhetoric at face value, but huh, keeping an eye on what kind of substance is actually occurring. Well, and uh, yeah, I guess uh, another term for that would be normalizing these people. You don't want to normalize yes. them. Yeah. Um, so uh, would you say that there's there been, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's documented, but we read a lot about this, an increase in the kind of uh, racist or hate crimes, um, any kind of hate crimes since Trump, uh, uh, since the advent of Trump, and especially since he got elected. I mean, that's what worries me about this. We only have a couple of minutes left here. And what worries me about these groups and the fact that they now have somebody in the White House, uh, one you know, one way or another, and maybe even a couple of people in the White House who are bridges uh, to their to their views or to their groups or who reflect points of view, misogynistic or racist or anti-Semitic. The fact that these people reflect these kinds of things and are in a position of tremendous power now. I mean, after all, look at a guy. Now he's appointed Jeff Sessions to be the attorney general. I mean, how much do we have to, in the couple of minutes we have left here, how much do we have to fear these people? I mean, what do we, I mean, we have to keep track of them and, and groups like yours in Southern Poverty Law uh, have always kept track of them, but what, what do we have to fear from them? And do we have something to fear from them? Are they just merely a fringe? Yeah, I mean, you know, the issue is that it's not just about the alt-right fringe, but it's about the broader base of Trump supporters. Um, and the hate crimes that Southern Poverty Law Center has been tracking since the Trump administration, since the Trump election, um, are not necessarily being perpetrated by members of the alt-right. Um, they're being perpetrated um, by, you know, the broader sort of uh, Trump uh, supporters, right? That's um, something I think that we also should pay. share these concerns. So, yeah. so the alt right is is very alarming and it's an ideological base. Um, but we certainly do need to be concerned. And a lot of these uh, hate incidents, some of them have explicitly referred to Trump in committing their attacks. 
it's hard to get a good handle mm-hmm. on, um, you know, as you're going along of exactly how many hate crimes are happening. Many of them are unreported. Um, they're not monitored well. Some things are considered hate crimes and some things aren't. The Southern Poverty Law Center is currently tracking um, anti-woman um, attacks as well, but um, traditionally has not had um, misogynistic hate groups um, listed under its rubric and with you know Trump's um, record of sexual assault and and the um, people who have uh, referred to that um, in you know sort of laudatory terms or justifications for their own attacks. So right. so there's a lot to be concerned about. Um, well, we only have a, we know, only have about a minute left, but you are saying sure. there, there is a lot to be concerned about with this wider group of uh, of the phenomenon of Trump and his supporters. Yeah, Trump says it's what they call the dog whistle. Um, that and even if something like the article you read, they technically disavow violence. They'll say at one point, but then the rest of their rhetoric sounds mm-hmm. like you know. Um, it's motivating people to take action. So we have to um, we have to really keep an eye on this stuff. Um, yes, and that's what groups yeah, like yours should, are for, right? I mean, political yeah, research. Yeah, we should keep stuff. an eye on on violent attacks on policy. Just the there's a whole everything needs to be under under uh, review. Uh, how do people get in touch with or see the kind of work that's done on political research associates? Yeah, they can um, access their reports and coverage at politicalresearch.org. Um, politicalresearch.org, okay. And also subscribe for their quarterly magazine there in, in addition to getting the online content. All right. Um, thank you very much, Alex DeBranco. And I'm, I really appreciate the fact that you got up so early this morning to, uh, to do the interview. <laughs> yeah, of course. It was great speaking with you. Okay, Alex DeBranco um, and Political Research Associates. These groups have to be monitored all the time, and there are places like Southern Poverty Law Center and Political Research Associates and uh, Public Citizen. These groups are out there, and we have to pay more attention than we ever did because uh, this is now who's got a direct line to the White House. All right. Uh, that's the wonderful news for this week, but we just have to keep checking on these people, don't we? This is Mike Fader. I'll see you next week. Jesus